When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, just before we begin, I wanted to take a short minute to talk to you about how you can get your hands on something new from the Welsh History Podcast. Thanks to Tee Public, we have a new online store. From t-shirts, stickers, hats, and everything in between, you can find them there. So have a look around, and you can do that at teepublic, that's T-E-E public.com forward slash stores forward slash Welsh dash history dash podcast thanks everybody and on with the show Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 151, Edward's Wales. On July 9th, 1461, Edward, Earl of March, was crowned King Edward IV. While burnishing his record in England, he had a problem in Wales. Jasper Tudor and his allies still controlled much of the land. So, to counteract that control and to cleanse, in quotes, Wales, he sent two of his marcher allies, newly named Lord William Herbert and Walter Devereux, to sort things out. The idea was to force the Earl of Pembroke and the rest of the Queen's allies either out of Wales or at least to the block, if possible. He appointed William Herbert with a number of titles. He was the Chief Justice, Chamberlain, Steward, and Forester in Carmarthenshire and Cardiganshire. This effectively placed much of southwest Wales under his control. Tudor's Pembroke lands only made a small amount of territory by comparison. Herbert was the first Welsh-born person named to the peerage other than the Tudors. Shortly after appointing Herbert to these titles, he then gave him his commission on May 9, 1461. Herbert and his appointed leadership were to root out Jasper Tudor, seize all of his lands and castles that were still in his control. The Lancastrian stronghold of Wales had to be broken if Edward was going to be safe against further bloodshed. So throughout the summer, Herbert and his allies prepared to take on Tudor. In South Wales, Tenby specifically, which had been lavishly reinforced by Tudor, ended up falling without a fight back into Yorkist hands. Pembroke, the key to Jasper's control over the last few years, fell by September 30th. John Scudamore, the commander of this fortification, trusted Edward's representative's mercy more than Tudor's protection. At a point when the Lancastrians were fleeing north and abandoning their posts, it was hard to argue with that logic. Scudamore did lose all his possessions thanks to parliamentary statute, but I guess that's better than losing your life to either execution or a siege. Herbert's most important capture was not the land or the castles or even the titles. 
as well-provisioned and bloodless as these had been. He also managed to capture the young Tudor heir Henry at Pembroke. Henry was all of five years old at this point, and was not a real threat to Edward, but still had been seen as an important piece, an important historical piece for Wales alone, if nothing else. Sir Henry Stafford, who had married Henry's mother, Margaret Beaufort, was able to receive a pardon from the king, saving him and Margaret's lands from being seized, but Henry remained in the control of William Herbert. Herbert, for his part, paid a thousand pounds to keep Henry as his ward. Henry also kept his earldom of Richmond as he had not been disqualified, unlike his uncle Jasper. The Herberts kept Henry at Raglan Castle as they built it into a great regal location. There was some comparisons between it and, say, Windsor Castle. Not obviously at the same level, but nonetheless you can tell that the Herberts were putting on airs. They brought up Henry as a true noble, albeit one who was effectively under house arrest. Herbert wanted him to marry his daughter Maud, as he knew the young boy could be an important figure even in Yorkist Wales. The relationship that Henry had to the crown still mattered to both parties and was still significant. His linkages, of course, as heir to the Welsh thrones, for lack of a better phrasing, also meant he was an important person for Wales as well, so much so that he was a person of interest to the poets and bards as well as to the public. After seizing the south, Herbert now turned north to deal with his nemesis directly. Jasper and his group, realizing they were in trouble, did what many Welsh leaders before them had done. He took his loyal troops and fled into the mountains. Jasper, wanting to gain control of the north, attacked Carnarvon. The assault and siege appears to have failed miserably. Herbert's army caught them just outside of the town on October 16th and fully routed them. Tudor escaped once again the clutches of his Yorkist enemies, much to the surprise, I'm sure, of his enemies, fleeing in different reports in different directions, either to Ireland or Scotland. We know for a fact he does end up in Scotland, so regardless of where he went initially, it was Scotland that he was bound. On November 6th, Parliament stripped Jasper of his titles and lands, and the one-time Master of Wales was now once again landless, and a noble, more or less in name only. Herbert continued his march in North Wales through the winter, finally capturing Denby in January of 1462. King Edward would grant Herbert a thousand pounds to help rebuild the town and fortifications. We actually mentioned this a couple of episodes back. Tereg Kennan was next, and it fell in May, leaving only Harlock Castle as the last remaining Lancastrian possession in Wales. Harlech, unlike every other possession, held out for years, a constant sore on the side of the Yorkist cause. They drove the locals nuts with constant raids and ransoming of various locals they kidnapped and captured, so much so that the local Welsh and English populations appealed to the king to put a stop to it. But even in this early age of gunpowder and cannons, Harlech continued to press on. Edward and Herbert may have felt that the men of Harlech, led by David Ap Ewan, 
would eventually fall or leave as they could make little headway in capturing territory or land. But the castle continued to be easily supplied by its proximity to the Irish Sea, and it had natural and built-up defenses which, between them, helped to continue to keep them safe. Even if they were unable to defeat anybody outside of that area. We'll speak further in depth of this particular castle next episode, but for now, keep that in mind. As the war within Wales turned into a small skirmish on the fringe of the old kingdom of Gwynedd, Edward began to dole out the spoils of war. Land held by the Lancastrians in Wales was now free to be exchanged to the loyalists of Edward IV. Edward now himself owned the entirety of the principality, which is the possession of most princes of Wales and kings. It was seized from the former prince of Wales, of course, the likely heir to King Henry's throne, had King Henry continued, and as well now owned Pembrokeshire, which he had obviously seized from Jasper Tudor. Every other marcher lordship, with the exception of one, was either in the hands of a child or in the hands of the king through inheritance. The only exceptions were those controlled by the powerful Warwick. Also, the entirety of Wales was Edward's to effectively give, and thus he did. William Herbert gained lands all throughout South Wales, including the title of Earl of Pembroke. He was also made Knight of the Garter. He was, in all respects, the right-hand man to the king and the highest Welshman in the land. From 1462 to 1464, Herbert continued to grow under Edward. He was put in control of Harlech and the area around it, at least in name, and he was also given control of the territory of Merrimethshire, just north of Aberystwyth, which of course is the county that Harlech was a part of. Herbert were then granted lordships and territories as each of the various family members benefited from this new relationship, and they also gained territory even in the south of England. As King Edward rewarded them, he claimed that William, in quotes, was raised to the estate baron and magnet in our realm. Bards across Wales acknowledged the power that Herbert had gained by calling on him to protect Henry Tudor and asking him to keep him like gold. Others compared him to Gawain, the knight of Arthur's round table. To Welsh poets, Herbert was a new figure of promise, and maybe, just maybe, their new star for Welsh freedom, for Welsh independence, or at least for Welsh protection, to at least have yet another Welshman at the top and looking out for Wales. Really, William was just another friend of the king who had taken advantage of that relationship to create a fiefdom for himself and his heirs. I get the impression that he was not a patriot of Wales or a nationalist, but simply another Yorkist Norbolt who hated the Lancastrians and Jasper Tudor and his family in particular, which of course shows the irony of trying to marry them into his own. But He's a political animal and wise enough to understand the power that Henry had and having him in his family would protect him as long as he could bring him up after his own desire. The Herberts and Devereaux gained everything by hitching their wagon to the Duke of York and his heirs. And the new Wales of the 1460s 
also gained them a great deal of influence at court, thanks to both their loyalty and their ability to enforce the will of the king. So why exactly were bards so complimentary to the Yorkists, especially as they'd been linked so much with the cause of the Tudors and Glyndwr before them? Well, two reasons, of course, stand out. The first is the Yorkist loyalists went on a propaganda campaign in Wales. And what better way to do that than through the poets and singers who the common people heard and listened to? Secondly, the Yorkists had won, and if you wanted to get paid, you sung the songs of the new masters. Much like after the Glyndwr downfall, bards largely followed the funding. The charm offensive was on, and the new king needed to win over the people on the grounds of what is called the Hearts and Minds campaign in modern times. As pointed out by historian Glanmore Williams, it would be difficult to credit King Edward, alert as he always was of the value of the kinds of propaganda that would be needed, having grasped how attractive this poetry would be to his Welsh subjects when the point was put to him by Herbert or someone amongst his followers in Wales. Welsh poets like Gutor Glyn, William Ap Thomas, Hugh Caerlwyd, or Howell Surdwal were all poets who spoke up for the Yorkist cause. They were praisers of the Herberts and their various relations. Glyn, for example, pushed Edward as a descendant of Welsh lineage, a point of pride as the Mortimers were intermarried with the old kings of Powys. Herbert, of course, was at the very least pretty clever and seemed to understand the needs of his new job. Glenn said of Herbert that he had the ear of London, showing just how influential he had become. The fact that Wales remained relatively peaceful immediately after the new management arrived showed that they knew the needs both in popular sentiment and practical reward. The Welsh bards, always leery of the English, pushed Herbert into ensuring that Henry married into his family rather than having yet another Englishman, keeping the links to this old line in Wales. They already saw a lot of importance in Henry's birth, and they expressed a real desire that he remain on the radar as a possible heir to the crown of England. At a time, he had a weak link, but nonetheless, a bard can dream, right? One observation which comes through all of this is that the storytellers of Wales, the bards, poets, and whomever still had loyalty to one master, and that master was Wales, Cymru. They longed for Wales to be governed once again by a Welshman. They crossed support for either Lancastrians or Yorkist causes only as it helped Wales. They were not concerned about what went on in London, or to any other extent anywhere else in England. Daffet Lloyd, in fact, warned Herbert, Beware the council, fawning smile, and wine of the Englishman. It is worse than poison. The bards in the Edwardian era likely wrote a lot of popular material which we now do not have. While some were definitely supporters of the Yorkists, there were still those loyal to Lancastrians, Jasper Tudor still had his loyalists in this land, and they continued to hope for his return during this period. One great loss in this area, of course, is missing out of the songs that were being sung in the town halls, the villages, the gathering spots, or the hearths during the winter. What would people sing about 
and what would be the old favorites that everybody knew, the haunting song that would bring tears, the song that would stir patriotic fervor. We just don't know. And for all the things that we do know, there's so much more than we'd love to know. So many of the daily lives of Welsh people in this period slip under the cracks of the work of the nobility and their various squabbles. This is an area which would open up a more intimate viewpoint to popular thought, one that we only gain a very hazy image of. And again, I'll continue to unfortunately go back to for quite some time to come. Yet even within that, we do get those that are loyal to the various sides. There are men and women willing to sacrifice their lives and their liberty and their financial security in order to defend various positions. And as the 1460s wore on, Jasper Tudor, one of those, and the Lancastrians had not forgotten their promise to take back the land of Wales. They continued to try and do so, including with the Duke of Somerset, to attempt to push back against the Yorkists. In 1462, a spy of the Lancastrians had fallen into the hands of King Edward with a rather improbable story. Jasper Tudor and Somerset were to land in Anglesey, while forces of King Henry from all sorts of diverse places would land at points across England to rally the forces of hundreds of thousands of troops from Scotland to Portugal to Denmark. Between the astronomical numbers and the general idea of international invading forces being headed by the Lancastrian cause, all of this seems highly unlikely. At worst, a stupid political miscalculation of epic proportions, and at best, a desperate dice throw. This dream never came to fruition, but rumors would likely strengthen the cause for the Orcas, because, of course, if there's one thing the English don't appreciate, it's an invasion from their neighbors. It was quite another for them to invade, but it's ridiculous to have an invading foreign army. How dare they? So thus, it would, if nothing else, work as great propaganda. If there's one thing that history has shown us, is that the heirs to the Normans played the nationalism card pretty hard after losing most of their French possessions. Even if the goal was never reached, the Lancastrians still tried to entice the French king, Louis XI, to help them in their cause. Most historians agree that Louis, after a spate of some poor leadership for France, was both very clever and politically astute. In the summer of 1462, Queen Margaret left Scotland with a few of her remaining loyal nobles and arrived in France. They hoped to create a treaty which would give them the financial backing, if not at least a military one, to fund another campaign against Edward. They needed help, and Louis, seeing the opportunity, was willing to give it. On June 28, 1462, they signed the Treaty of Tours, a sweeping treaty that would offer the Lancastrians a great deal of funding, a great deal of which would actually be loaned to them. This would, of course, help them in the war by hiring mercenaries and additional troops, funding troops that they did have already, helping them to keep them in the pay packet so that they wouldn't run away at the first time of a harvest, those kind of things. And 
To help pay back this massive loan, the Lancastrians would then, for their part, give up Calais, severing the last English link to France. This would have been highly unpopular in England, as you can imagine, and thus was hidden from the public to avoid it getting out. Certainly it showed that Louis was not some altruist. He wanted to finally rid the last vestiges of English control from the land and finally end the 100 Years' War, which at that point was still effectively an open war, or at least at best only in a truce. It shows how bad things had gotten for the Lancastrians that in desperation they were willing to try and cast this risk, knowing that the public would likely revolt against this idea if they found out. It's hard to know what their plan was and if they were willing to even go through with it. Would they renege on the idea of giving away Calais after the fact? Either way, the whole treaty fell apart because a third party was not exactly about to let the French just wander in to take Calais. Philip, Duke of Burgundy, allied to Edward, would not allow the French to cross his territory, which buffered Calais. Edward would not want to be framed as the king who lost France. And in fact, he still would push his own claim to the title of king of France a decade later. Margaret and her followers returned from France basically empty-handed. Louis' promises went up in smoke, and by 1464, he signed a treaty with Edward to basically stay out of the dispute for the next year. This meant that the Lancastrians had nothing but a few men and some castles in northern England and little else. By Christmas 1462, the Yorkists had seized all of the Lancastrians' castles in the north. Somerset had submitted to Edward, if only briefly, and Jasper had fled back to Scotland after another year on the run. This was the low ebb of the Lancastrians for this phase of the war. They were almost friendless, and without even a pretext of control, King Henry was little more than a pretender. He could not enforce his claim, and Edward was now in full control. In Scotland, Jasper continued to plan for his own return, fully committed to the Lancastrian lost cause. While the men of Harlech continued to give a black eye to the control William Herbert sought to use to finally bring Wales to heel. King Edward, for his part, had now had enough of those loyal to Tudor, and after 1464 would give Herbert the tools he needed to finally do away with this last bastion of Lancastrian control in his kingdom. With that, thank you for listening. I hope you're healthy and happy, and uh, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod, or you can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast, where we do post some things from time to time. If you are interested in helping to support the podcast, especially with our funding of the material I need to do the research, uh, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Welsh history. Thank you, everybody. Have a great day. We'll talk to you all next time and take care. Bye-bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more info, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. History is complicated. 
The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.